me like watching you back off to burp and stuff. I mean, that's kind of weird. Transmission incoming. Transmission incoming. Well, well, who? The picture show. Episode 0071, Beware Blue Balls. You've entered the Potable Picture Show, your podcast dedicated to motion pictures and drinking liquors. I'm your host, Kevin McRae, and I'm here to tell you this podcast may contain mature language. So in today's episode, we are back after a week off on our Northwest adventure and journey, and now we're back for another round in the cantina where we'll be covering the recent Guillermo del Toro film, Crimson Peak. So let's head up to the cantina and into our VIP booth and get today's show started. Sitting across from me, it is the, uh, what would you call your title, Heathen? I'm going to turn off, I'm going to turn off the, uh, her name is Heathen. She's going to tell you her title as I turn off the VIP booth's internal refrigeration system. My title of what? My title of the podcast, my title of the movie group, my title sure. at work. Uh, no. My title of the household. My what do, title. What do I usually in life? What do I usually introduce you as? The head organizer of the Sierra Nevada Movie Club. Yeah. Is that your title? I guess. It's like better than head organizer, though, right? It's like CEO, something like that. I am the organizer. Well, you're not the organizer. I'm the head honcho, the HNIC. I just feel like it's it's something more than that. Anyway, she is joining us here in the cantina. And she's about to crack open her sipping beverage. Ooh, it's frothing at the mouth. Something in common. Um, I'm waiting. I think we got a phone message. And I'm waiting to see what that may be here. Looks like this is from Western Warlock. It's fancy. Star Wars is going to suck. All right, that was from Western Warlock. That was our short message there. All that time wasted just to hear that. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, In film history. Speaking about Star Wars and film history, today is Carrie Fisher's birthday, born... October 21st, 1956, he turns 59 today, best known 
I think, by everybody as her role as Princess Leia. And we will see her again. We've seen her in the recent, the, the third uh, trailer for The Force Awakens. We got to see a lot of the returning cast with Chewbacca and Han Solo and Princess Leia. And that was very exciting. It's also Back to the Future Day. It is Back to the Future uh, Day. And there's been a lot of news about that on the Facebook and the Internet and the TV and the morning shows and all and kinds the Twitter. of things. And the Nike and the Cubs. And, and the world everywhere. Yeah. So that's good. Um, but speaking about Star Wars, we did get our Force Awakened tickets. And Star Wars broke the internet, or tried to. Um, this a, They broke a record. This record probably will never be broke again, I don't think. For uh, Broke the record for most pre-sale tickets. And not only did it break the record, but it broke it by... Like eight times. Yeah, like five or eight times. Uh, from the uh, the last one was the Hunger Games. Yeah, the Hunger Games. Um, outsold, I think, five times for IMAX and eight times in general. A lot of uh, movie sites didn't give numbers, but as I said, it sort of broke the the internet. Uh, Fandango was constantly down yesterday. That's um, why I didn't use it as my news, is because it really didn't give any numbers, and so I thought. Mm. Other sources. So we did end up getting our tickets. It's it's one, I guess, lucky thing about living in Reno and not living somewhere like Los Angeles or something like that, where perhaps people are more savvy um, to these kinds of things. But because uh, I was reading, uh, because of this, there's a lot of ticket scalping going on up to, um, what was the figure I read? Well, one I read, you know. The you should have probably got four tickets, actually, when you were buying them. Yeah, but I didn't, uh, I didn't know that. Um you know, the uh, Chinese theater in Los Angeles used to be known as Grumman's or something like that. Uh, they're selling, some guy selling tickets for opening day for 2500 bucks a ticket for that. Uh, for a movie that's basically be, be playing the next day in like every screen and every theater for three months. So I don't really see that. I have a new story here saying that um, tickets on eBay and Craigslist include $1,000 seats in Los Angeles, 8000 ticket in Austin, Texas, and a $10,000 price for two tickets um, in North, in Ohio, which includes a limo ride in a hotel room. So that's just crazy. Mm. One eBay reseller in Delaware wants $10,000 for two tickets. I don't get it. Like I said, this movie, it's not like it's a one-time event. It's not like it's a Beatles reunion or a Led Zeppelin reunion or something like that where um, those aren't really good examples since those bands have dead members in them. But it's not like this is a one-time, one-time only thing that no one's going to see it. This thing's going to be going on forever and ever and ever. People will probably pay for it, though, which is stupid. If they would just wait. They probably be, what they just want to be one of the first people to see it so that they can be the spoilers, I guess. Well, I mean, that's me, too, and that's why I wanted to get um, on opening day. And I was sitting, I wasn't waiting in line. At the theaters like other people but i was hitting refresh on the computer and here in reno at our like luxury theater the tickets went on sale a little bit later than some of the other theaters like the arc light and things like that um almost almost 24 hours later here in reno so i was sitting there and, and waiting for him to go on and it wasn't as big a problem as i thought the first time i tried to buy tickets it didn't let me pass through the transaction uh, beer maker Matt, who's not here tonight, said it took him a few tries to get through. But relatively speaking, a lot of seats available compared to 
you know, bigger cities where there was like hundreds of people waiting in line for, for a, a, a ticket. And the nice thing about the luxury theaters where we're going is that we're not going to have to get there four, five, six, seven, eight, twelve 12 hours early to get our seat. We'll be there on opening day and we already have our seats picked out so we can get there five minutes ahead of time, get in our seat and enjoy our movie. Mm-hmm. So it should be nice. Uh, Heathen doesn't really care for the Star Wars, but I'm pretty excited. And apparently Western Warlock doesn't care for the new Star Wars either. He says it's going to suck. But he wasn't even born until, like, Return of the Jedi. What does he know? He grew up with Phantom Menace. as much as I do. Yeah, well. Anyways, um, if you ever hear this sound, if you're new to the podcast, or if you're just waiting to wet your whistle... Uh, that's that's fine to hit this baby. Anytime you hear the hit the baby sounder, go ahead and drink along with us at home. Heathen's not doing it. She always tries to cop out on this part of her um, duties. Heathen's headlines. Heathen's headlines. Comedian Chris Rock will host the uh, Oscar party. Oscar party. <laughs> He's going to host our Oscar party. Oh, wouldn't that be fantastic? He's going to host the Oscars ceremony um, in February for the second time. Mm-hmm. 2005. Yes, 2005. The first time was in 2000. Oh, I meant 2015. The first time was in 2005. Mm-hmm, where he bombed. I don't remember. Uh, anyway... No, you just like took the thunder out from under me. <laughs> I didn't mean to. Do that every time. I'm flinching because I think you're going to throw something at me. All I got is a bottle cap, and I don't know how to do that flicking motion. Continue with the news, please. The hosting job is regarded as one of the biggest honors in the entertainment industry. Um, it also is one of the most difficult as it requires a mix of comedic monologues. Oscar producers said rock who is also an actor, writer, producer, and director, was their number one choice, period. Rock 50 said in a statement, it's great to be back. So, what do you think about that, Heathen? I don't know. <laughs> great commentary. All right, I was Well, gonna... we'll see, because I... I was really looking forward to uh, Neil Patrick Harris, but the performance was... You didn't like it? I No, I think Ellen DeGeneres did fantastic. So here's what I have to say, and that's why I asked you what you thought first, so you wouldn't get mad at me for talking, for bogarting the conversation. Um, I think I have kind of two things to say about this. But my first point is I think Chris Rock is a like a rock star of a comedian. He's one of the best comedians out there. He's on the Mount Rushmore of comedians. Super Superstar comedian. However, um, I don't... No, I don't know how well he's going to do as an Oscar host, especially a second time around. Um, I would rather see someone a little bit more Hollywood savvy. I'd like to see... It doesn't even have to be a comedian. It doesn't have to be um, like the Neil Patrick Harris or Ellen DeGeneres. I would kind of like to see someone that's more um, part of Hollywood, like more Hollywood, like I'm saying like a, like a, like a Kevin Spacey or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that that has a lot of Hollywood knowledge, also is very funny, also can do a lot of the things like Neil Patrick Harris can do. You know, someone that can, again, like Kevin Spacey, that can sing and dance. And and, and, um, just to me, Chris Rock seems more of an outsider. It just seems like he's just a generic host. Just a comedian. Yeah, just a comedian. I know he's in the movie. Not just a comedian, but you know what I mean. I I get what you're saying. We're going to have to fix your mic in a moment. It might be backwards. Um, 
so that's that's the first thing I was going to say. My counterpoint to that slightly is that it seems more and more as the Oscars have gone on, um, especially, say, with like the Neil Patrick Harris. I'm not just saying with the Oscars. I'm seeing this with a lot of award shows. It doesn't really matter who hosts that much. The host is kind of in charge of the opening monologue and a couple other things. But then after that, it's just a bunch of other... Um, people doing bits and announcing things and it seems like they've really spread out the hosting duties um and i've said crap duties well no i guess i said duties twice so it doesn't to me it seems like it doesn't really matter who the host is anymore it's not like back in the billy crystal days when he hosted every year and it was great and he pretty much took control of it now it's like everyone they, they try to get everyone involved in um presenting something or announcing something or a little bit. So I don't think it really matters who the hosts are as long as they aren't awkward. So the the Seth MacFarlane one, I think, his opening monologue offended a lot of people. When Chris Rock first did it in 2005, he kind of um, offended a lot of people. He treated it more as like a roast and didn't really treat it respectfully. And actually, both of those I liked. I like Seth MacFarlane, but he really was considered a bomb. I just think that, uh, you know, these award shows go on too long anyway. They don't need to throw in all the stuff. The host doesn't really matter. If you do want to get a host to do it, go go somewhere more classy. Try to try to bring back old Hollywood a little bit. That's what I would like to see is more of when it was, when when the award shows meant something, when people cared about it, um, when it was all about tuxedos and gowns. I mean, it's still about that, but it's still it's mostly a joke now, really. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see it return, and that's why like I said I'd like to see someone like Kevin Spacey or someone like that that can that has the Hollywood knowledge and the history. And can bring back a little bit of that style. I guess Neil Patrick Harris kind of did that a little bit, but it was just again, it was more of a variety show, like a show on TV where we just had all this crap going on. And I did, I didn't like that. I didn't really like it either, actually. I, I, he tried to bring back old Hollywood in a different way, but it seemed too cheesy, I think, to me, mm-hmm. and just too much. I don't know. Next news: a Pixar tribute to uh, friendship uh, delivers every single one of the little feelings um, Pixar movie has a well-known uh, reputation for bringing everyone's emotions right to the surface the company has decided to celebrate their 20th anniversary of releasing a heart-tugging classic by tying it into their newest release The Good Dinosaur I'm kind of looking forward to seeing this movie so what is it? I understand the Good Dinosaur. That's the one that's coming out in November mm-hmm. or something. So what are they tying into it? They're tying the uh, their twentieth anniversary into the release of this movie, and there was a little Easter egg in, um, oh, what was the Inside Out? Yeah, the Inside Out. About where the dinosaur. They, yeah, when they were taking the pictures of the family in the dinosaur in the dinosaur area. I saw it online. It's oh, I know. Cute. I think they did also when the they would go through like a board game area. I think we talked about that when we went through Inside Out on the podcast. So the Good Dinosaur opens November twenty fifth. So we'll have to try to um, do a movie meetup for Thanksgiving. That would be kind of fun. Well, sure. That that will be a big one. I know a lot of our members are looking forward to that. I, I mentioned to Heathen member. the other day when we went to the the movies. Is um, so I've seen two trailers, two different trailers for. Uh, the good dinosaur now and it just does not look good to me but i think i'm just hoping for too much and i'm looking too much at the pixar so the movie is very um the style is i guess it's more like um because didn't they consider uh 
Brave, a Pixar movie or something. That was like a Pixar Disney movie. So this is more like that. This movie doesn't look like the, the the Pixar animation. This this animation to me looks more like Disney. Mm-hmm. And um, the first preview, you can see this a little bit more. There's too much. The main characters, especially the dinosaur, looks real cartoony compared to the environment around him, which has more of a. I thought it was cute. Which has more of a realistic aspect to it, and and I don't. I, I don't know. I, I think I talked about that on the podcast before, that that kind of throws me off, that the dinosaur is very cartoony and, and the rest of the landscape is very realistic. And I think maybe that was a conscious decision um, because they had some other dinosaur movies that came out that were more realistic looking and they really bombed. I'm sure it'll be a good story. I like the, 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 the synopsis of it, kind of, where the dinosaur is more like the hero and the cave boy is more like... Um, someone he's saving so it's kind of switched around a little bit where usually in i think most you would think about it be like a caveman saving a dinosaur um i don't i mean i don't know that's what i i kind of get from it is this dinosaur saving this little cave boy the dinosaur's just going about his business and you know that's what i gotta say about that i definitely will see it and i hope it's good pixar hasn't really failed yet too much the latest uh james bond adventure um, the critics across the pond have just come out from their first screening. The reactions are kind of hit and miss, hmm. but across the board, um, the the responses are not bad at all. Um, they're mostly positive. Even the more negative responses are leaning to it's not terrible. <laughs> um, the only criticism that they really have is that the film doesn't live up to the its predecessor of 2012 Skyfall, which may be an unfair comparison according to the article that I read. But whatever the people think, the movie as a whole, good, bad, or mediocre, there's um, one element that appears pretty near everyone agree that it's going to be a fantastic movie. Um, it opens in the U.S. November 6th. But it hits theaters in the UK next week, October 26th. Skyfall was good. Casino Royale was real good. I remember when Casino Royale came out and I'd moved to Reno and I was talking to people here in Reno and Sacramento. And a lot of people I knew didn't want to see it. They said, I don't like James Bond movies. I said, but this is different. This is like saying you didn't like the old Batman movies and then the new Batman movies came out. They were totally different. Like It was way less cartoony. It was way more realistic, way more rugged, way more um, you know, in your face. Daniel Craig, for me personally, is my favorite, probably my favorite James Bond, just because, again, it's a more realistic take. Uh, I'm a big Sean Connery James Bond fan, but. Well, what they're saying is that that the criticism, the only criticism was that it wasn't going to live up to, that it doesn't mm-hmm. live up to that. But across the board, everybody's like, it's it's going to be, and this is just the new, because it just came out. Yeah, and then I was talking about, you know, they, they said recently, so this will probably be Daniel Craig's last James Bond, and he had a quote saying he'd rather slit his wrist than play James Bond again, which makes me sad. Like, I'm trying to gonna try to keep that out of my mind when I go see the movie because it's would be, you know, for me, it would be hard to enjoy watching a movie where I know the actor. Well, first, you know, for really enjoying a movie, you need to take yourself out of the reality and put yourself into the reality of the movie, which means that, you're seeing these actors as these characters. But then I don't want in the back of my mind thinking, well, this isn't really James Bond. This is this actor that hates playing this role. 
And and uh, I just hope that doesn't take me out of it too much. It didn't seem like he didn't like it. Yeah, yeah it didn't seem to that to me either. Um, I was going to say this is just a short news story that's relatively related to James Bond is there's a lot of speculation about who's going to be the next James Bond, and I think they've settled on this British guy. But for a while, they were talking about Idris Elba, um, who is, you've seen him in a lot of um, things like The Wire, and um, he was the, the one of the Black Norse gods in Thor. Um, he recently came out in a Netflix movie, and this is Netflix's first like real movie. And two interesting things about that. They also released it theatrically, but a lot of the movie theaters refused to uh, show it because Netflix is basically trying to take everyone out of business. And also, this is uh, Netflix's first like real mainstream, not a documentary, but movie that they're hoping will get an Oscar nomination. Oh, and the movie's called something like Beasts of No Nation. I haven't watched it yet. It's been on our queue since we came back from our trip, but um, we haven't watched it yet. But it should be good, and Idris Elba is, is a really good person. Any more news on there? Well, speaking about our trip, let's do a really brief, let's try to keep it under three minutes recap. Um, we didn't do a potable roadshow this this time. We did potable roadshow one and two. You can go check those out. Uh, but three, we didn't do it for three. Uh, one, we were just trying to relax a little bit this time. And also, there wasn't a whole lot we could have covered that we didn't cover the first time. And I think this time we mostly tried to enjoy it as more of a vacation. So we did finish the passports and we went to the McMinimans party in Bothell, Washington at Anderson School. And he then tell us a little bit about the uh, party that we were, the exclusive party we were invited to. There was like 2,000 people there on the night that we went. And the property was somewhat unfinished. And it was kind of a rollout for the staff. So they were quite overwhelmed. It took two and a half hours for us to get dinner. But dinner was free. Drinks were free. Walked around. The paint was barely dry. Construction was still around the property. But it was still nice because... There was only been a lot, a lot of parts that were open that they didn't expect to be open. Even other people with the McMinimans like, oh, they had the tiki bar open. We didn't think that would be open. Um, that was towards the end of the night when we got to the tiki bar. And I was confused by, one, false information from my waiter. And two, it was the end of the night. And I'd already drank a lot because it was free food, free drink. Um, you know, our just our dinner alone would have been like 90 bucks, but it was free. It did take a long time. The other part of our trip that was kind of cool, we went to uh, Rogue's headquarters. I think like your portion would have been like $90 just for the plate, but not with the drinks, like the meal. Well, my portion, I think my food was like 45 or something dollars, and, I was and then we ordered a couple appetizers, which were like $15, $20 each, too. Yeah, that's food. not including your alcohol that you had. Yeah, which we drank all around the property, too. Right. Um. We also went to Rogue Headquarters in Newport, and that was uh, that was a very uh, cool place to go. If you do go there um, to visit, if you're into Rogue Beer, if you're into the Oregon coast or the West Coast, just remember when you get there, a lot of it is figuring it out for yourself. There's a couple signs, but for and some of it's cool, but also I'm I, you know a lot of places you're used to getting um, 
over-the-top customer service, but this was a working brewery. So when you walk into the brew house, or if you're trying to find the brew house, uh, there's a sign pointing to it, but then you you walk through a lot of the brewery itself, and a lot of it's um, roped off, and there's people working, walking around in their big, you know, galoshes and, and boots and stuff. But what kind of, you know, it's cool walking through that, but the flip side of that is you don't really know where you're going. You're not sure if you're in the right place. You don't want to go up some stairs that you don't, you're not sure if that's where you belong. And no one ever really says anything to you. You just kind of wander around, I guess, until you get off course. And I, I just wonder if there's anyone that ever drinks too much there and then can't find their way out and then just gets in the wrong area and gets squashed up in a vat and then they become like dead man beer or something like that. Hmm. Maybe. Had a great view from the brewery and from the distillery um, where there was a girl that had only been working there for about six days. It was extremely laughy. Uh, so she had the bartender skills as far as the social aspect, but um, not altogether there intellectually, maybe in a certain way. Yeah. She's just kind of, you know, if you think it, she wasn't blonde, but if you think of your stereotypical bubbly, dumb blonde that's just there to be happy, but isn't entirely sure what she's doing all the time. Um, and she didn't really ignore us. She's like, how's that? How's this? What did you think of those two? I don't know. Cool place to visit. And we saw sea lions. Should we have anything else to say about our trip of note? Well, there was a bunch of other things that we did, we but went, yeah. We went sake tasting, but we might save our sake knowledge for a future podcast. Yes, we will. All right, let's head into cocktail. That will be a Thanksgiving. Oh, so we'll do good dinosaur and sake? Well, probably uh, the ending of the, the sake, because we'll save. Yes, it'll be a Thanksgiving. All right, let's head into cocktail corner. I see. America drinking the fabulous cocktails I make. America's getting stinking on something I stir or shake. So this week in Cocktail Corner, we were going to make a drink uh, that was a riff off of the film Crimson Peak, which we saw. I found on the internet a Crimson Peak drink. They called for uh, cream of Coke, coconut, white creme de cacao, vodka, lots of ice, raspberry liqueur. And the idea was to make a white mixed or um, blended drink and then drip the, the raspberry on top. So Crimson Peak, it gets its name for uh, when it snows, the red clay beneath the castle leaches up into the, the snow and looks like red snow. So I took my own version of that, and I figured that the main idea was just to make it look like red on top of white. So I little t did a little bit different, is um, put a bunch of ice in a blender, and our meat of the, well, not, maybe not our meat, but as far as our alcohol content is going to come from uh, 99 Cinnamon. I probably would have preferred something like Avalanche that's going to give you more of a cool mint flavor to go along with the theme of the movie, of the snow. But we used 99 uh, um, cinnamon, about uh, an ounce and a half of that, and about a half an ounce of Kahlua, just to give it a little bit of a creamy flavor and to mix up with that. And you put that in the blender, kind of make you your... you had the coconut. I didn't add that in yet oh, when I blended sorry. it. So put it in the blender, mix it up, kind of a, uh, a runny snow cone, put that in a glass that's like a um, margarita glass. And then in that, you can add a little bit more of, um, we added about another ounce or half an ounce of coconut rum. 
And then we added another couple ounces of the coconut milk over the top to give it the white flavor and to add the sweetness. And then over that we just drizzled like half a cap full of Campari for the color for the red over the white. Also, I, I like the Campari in this cocktail versus the raspberry liqueur that they used in theirs is that they make a point in the film that nothing grows in that land. Everything comes up bitter. Um, he, he makes uh, the lady um, some kind of tea and she says that's a little bit bitter. And he says, well, nothing can grow in this land without a little bit of bitterness. And Campari definitely has a, uh, more than a touch of bitterness to it above its sweetness. So I wanted to add a few elements to this drink. A little bit of sweet, a little bit of cream, a little bit of um, that bitterness and um, I did do a version of this earlier and it came out pretty well and I did a couple modifications so we'll see how this one tastes anything to drink to heathen I didn't ask you before the podcast um hopefully we will get our Halloween costumes this weekend all right Halloween woo-woo really interesting with the cinnamon and the coconut milk oh yeah and the cinnamon i forgot so a little bit of spice to that too mm-hmm. um i know neither of us really like the cinnamon it but, took a second but then i like the coconut milk. but what i liked about this as i said because you're similar to me is you don't like cinnamon is when i tried my first version which was essentially the same ingredients but in a different order I kind of just mixed everything together the first time. And again, similar to a drink we had recently, it reminded me again of one of those um, molasses oatmeal cookies. You know, like Christmas cookies. So, again, maybe an apt drink for Christmas. Um, I don't mind cinnamon so much if it's not overpowering. And what I think really makes the drink... um, So maybe mix the coconut rum with the ice and flip it? And put a little, tiny little bit of the cinnamon instead of... Oh, no. That's got to be our big bulk because it's 99%. Otherwise, we're not going to get any alcohol. And and in this, oh. I think the cinnamon's fine. Um, shoot. I have no idea what I was about to say. <laughs> Must have been a lie. No. All right. Let's go into feature presentation. God damn it. I wish I could remember what, what that was. I apologize. Not your fault. I'm mushing up my mountains. This week in feature presentation, we are covering covering Crimson Peak. If you have not seen this movie, or if you wish to avoid spoilers, you may not want to continue on. Uh, We will definitely cover a couple spoilers, I believe, when we go forward talking about this film. Crimson Peak, directed by Guillermo del Toro, runtime of 1 hour 59 minutes. Here's a synopsis. When her heart is stolen by a seductive stranger, a young woman is swept away to a house atop a mountain of blood-red clay, a place filled with secrets that will haunt her forever. Between desire and darkness, between mystery and madness, lies the truth behind Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak. 
From the imagination of director Guillermo del Toro comes a supernatural mystery starring Tom, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, Mia Wazakowska, uh, Wazakowska, and Charlie Hunnam. Um, so I have a little bit to talk about this real quick. So the house, the Crimson Peak house, it was called, um, do you remember the name of the house? It's going to fail me now again because of my brain. Aller Dam or something? Yeah, something like that. Um, that house was, was physically built. Uh, it was built in entirety. Everything was brand new built and built specifically from the house. Nothing was, was scavenged or salvaged from something else. Um, had to be torn down at the end of the shoot because it was built inside a, a studio. Uh, Tom Hiddleston said that it was it was sad to see the house being torn down. Um, Mia Wazakowska said that she'd never been on a set so large before, and she was in a pretty big set. I think she was the one that was in uh, the Alice in Wonderland movie, so she'd been in some big sets. She said she'd never been on a set so large before. It was a set that you could interact with. I mean, it had all three stories. It had really had the bathroom. It was it was a physical set that you could um, walk around in. In an interview, Del Toro said the color red is associated with the ghosts. Only those linked to the ghosts wear red, and red doesn't appear anywhere else in the film except at the hall. So that reminds me a little bit of uh, Sixth Sense, where red played a big part in there. And red in that didn't necessarily mean ghosts. It always meant um, some sort of obstacle or restriction. I think the doorknob that Bruce Willis couldn't could ever get through was red until he realized that he was dead, and then he could finally open it. Um... Del Toro says, I wanted the house to feel like an enchanted castle from a fairy tale, quite a sinister one. The house is really a rotting representation of the family that has inhabited it, more than a haunted house in a traditional sense. It's like a cage, a killing jar that you use to kill insects, that you use to kill butterflies with. That's the house. The house basically is a sinister, sinister trap. So I thought that was interesting because there's a lot of metaphor in this movie. Uh, the house definitely in itself is a metaphor for a lot of things. Like he says, uh, the crumbling family, uh, the brother and sister, the house is falling around upon itself, fall, uh, sinking into the earth. Much like the family, um, hole in the roof. And what else was I going to say about that? So... Um, Anything you want to add to any any of those things? No, I thought that was interesting. Um, so the dog, there's a dog that... Um, so the names of the characters, the main girl's name is Edith Cushing. That is the character played by uh, Mia. She is, I guess, the, the protagonist of the film, the one that you hear the voiceovers in the trailers saying, I believe in ghosts. I've seen one before. Um, and then we have the brother and sister, Edith Sharp and Thomas Sharp played by Jessica Chastain and Tom Hiddleston. So Edith, uh, when she first comes to uh, Crimson Peak, or uh, Adderland, or whatever it was called, they find a little dog, and that breed of the dog is called a uh, pap papillon. And papillon means butterfly in French. So it's going along with one of the metaphors. There's Early on in the film, Mia... And um, Edith are talking, and this is back in America, and they're talking about butterflies. And Edith says, well, back where we're from, we don't have beautiful butterflies like this. We have black moths. And um, 
and Edith. I called them both Edith. They're not both called Edith. Shoot, I'm going to have to look that up. So um, Edith asks, you know, what do the moths eat? And Sister Sharp says, well, they eat uh, the butterflies. So that's a metaphor right there in the beginning or towards the beginning showing this competition or the relationship that's going to be between these two women that one is more of a delicate butterfly there to be seen and appreciated and the other one is more of a predator more a creature of the dark um let me put into here real quick anything you want to add to that um from the beginning i thought that uh maybe the brother and sister were actually husband and wife and that's what she says lucille sharp lucille sharp um that's right lucille lucille towards the end uh, edith does say that says oh you are you are uh not brother and sister in fact at all and then lucille says oh no that's the best part is we are there's kind of some lannister stuff going on again these are all spoilers where the brother and sister are getting it on the closest love of all is the sexual love between brother and sister mm-hmm. um and uh and also the dog besides being a but way before the dad like said i found out something mm-hmm. i thought that they were husband and wife well we knew something then, was going on we didn't know what though and that's a good guess because they find out that dad finds out something about the brother and sister way before that i thought that oh, okay. they were husband and wife okay way before that and then when he said i found something out i thought oh, okay he found a marriage certificate between the two and they're posing as brother and sister and then as it got a little bit further i was like no they they have to be incest um another thing about the dog being the butterfly the dog is is a lot of a a metaphor for for Edith. So this dog, again a spoiler, we find out belonged to a former con target slash wife. A former Mrs. Sharp. A former Mrs. Sharp. Um that um Thomas says or when they come back, so they've been to America for a while and they come back after who knows several weeks and they find this little dog and um What's her name again? And uh, Lucille says, uh, "I thought we got rid of. I thought got rid of that thing." He said, "Well, I, I, you know, I left it outside. I don't know how it survived on its own. Must have just got by on scraps or whatever." And it kind of, I think, is a metaphor again for um, Edith, and that Edith is a woman of privilege a little bit. She's a uh, society girl. She's educated. Um, ha- comes from a fairly, fairly wealthy family. She's not made to live out in the wilderness or tough times. Much like this dog. This dog isn't a hunting dog or anything like that. It's a little tiny lap dog. Again, not made to live in the wild, but they somehow managed to survive. Um, we talked about this, or I, I suggested this, or, or talked or uh, mentioned it on the podcast earlier. Before we saw this movie, this was a couple podcasts ago, I had said, I don't know how well this movie is going to do in the theater because I think they're mismarketing it. They're marketing it as a thriller, scare you, jump out horror movie. 
And I said, from what I've heard, it's more of a romance. And it turned out, in a lot of ways, that's what it was. Uh, Guillermo del Toro himself says that um, it's a gothic romance. I wrote more dark fairy tale than horror movie. Mm -hmm. So if you could think of some classic fairy tales and they just put a dark edge to it, like a dark fantasy. Um, Guillermo del Toro said that there used to be a lot of films like this in the early days of Hollywood gothic romances. He said they were... Uh, and also almost in literature. Like that, almost like the Dracula, like when it first yeah. came out when we were teenagers or whatever. Oh, I was I thought you were talking With about like 1930. Winona um, So he said, you know, gothic romances have like a little bit of melodrama, a little bit of romance. And, and just like uh, Edith says at the beginning of the film, uh, when she's talking about a story that she wrote, that this is a story with a ghost in it. This isn't a ghost story. Um, you know, again, somewhat similar, I think, to Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense isn't necessarily a scary film or a horror film. It's just a story about two people that happens to have ghosts in it. Mm-hmm. And one of them being a ghost himself. So don't go to this film if you're looking for... The trailer, I think, totally throws you off. Um, Heathen doesn't get... Or Heathen gets scared at everything. So I'll let her talk about how actually scary this film was wasn't scary i think it was more of a romance there was a couple of scary parts for me um oh. but it was not something that i couldn't sit through or anything <laughs> yeah um i mean there's just scary. mostly like the the uh wife coming through the floor was a little scary yeah, but that again, they, 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 it makes the previews make that kind of stuff seem way more more frightening. And even in the beginning, they kind of set you up, or not kind of, I think they do set you up to not be afraid of these ghosts. Because the movie starts out with Edith saying, um, I believe in ghosts, I've seen one, my mom died of the plague or whatever, and she visited me a week later. And they set that up to not be entirely scary. It's like, okay, she's kind of has a relationship or sees these ghosts, and the ghost that comes to see her mom says, Beware, Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, this is a kind of an ugly ghost, but it's trying to look out for me. And I think that sets it up for the ghost later on, that you're not you're not ever really that worried about them that much. They seem like they're all always there to help her out, um, even though they do look kind of spooky. Uh, mo- most of the scares, or is it's not really the scares, but there's... Um, and the atmosphere and the feeling, uh, much like all of Del Toro's movies, the 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 scenery, the shots, the the castle, the landscape—it's all very visual, um, very appealing to look at. Um, I'm glad we saw this on a on a bigger screen. I almost wish we would have saw it. Well, yeah, it was good enough. And then they, he worked a lot on. The sound mix and the creaks being in a certain way. He wanted to be very atmospheric and very detailed in every little thing in the castle. And Well, they're calling the movie a flop. Mm-hmm. And they're looking to try to market it for China to make some movie or some money back for it. But they're saying that China won't take it because of the ghost and the um, I just, mythical I- part of it. I think they really messed up on the marketing, and even if they I think so too, if they would have just made it um, with some romantic music in the background and taken the scariness out of it, I think a lot more people would have went to see it. 
Well, or, I mean, even if people knew what they were getting into, I don't know if this is a type of movie that is really sellable. Nowadays, a gothic romance, as Del Toro calls it, I don't know how many people really want to see that. I mean, it's a slow build. Um, like I said, uh, horror people aren't really going to like it because nothing really happens. You see a ghost once in a while. And then as far as the drama romance goes on, it's kind of, you know, a really drawn-out period piece. It's like a two-hour period piece about a lot about um i think like uh people who are into history historians might like it or who are into like the uh, 1930s or kind of reminiscence of oh let's look at the older stuff i mean i enjoyed it and i think people that like del toro films will like it because of the visual part but people that go into it not knowing what it is like the two guys that were laughing like um they were just idiots period they went into it probably really expecting a halloween jump out and scare you horror fest haunted castle and i already even before i had heard that it wasn't that i suspected it probably wasn't going to be seeing that it had tom heddleson and jessica jessica chastain and mia wasikowska or however you say her name you don't usually have bigger actors like this in a gruesome you know jump out and scare you cheap kind of movie Again, going back to Sixth Sense, I mean, Bruce Willis isn't going to be in a film that's just like hack and slash horror, you know? Right. So, um, I just think they really, they really fucked up on selling, on, on selling this. And even if they had marketed it right, I don't know that people would really want to see it anyway. I'm so glad we saw it. Yeah. It goes along with our Halloween month. It is mm-hmm. still a spooky story and it goes along with a lot people of... People should have went to see it just for that. Yeah. There's not very many Halloween movies that are out there mm-hmm. other than... And nobody went to go see Helen back. I mean, what's up with the world today? <laughs> what's up with that? Hey, hey. What's up with that? There was what's actu- up with that? There was can't a- run my down. Yeah. yeah there, there, was, uh, there was several people in the theater with us this time. Uh, a lot of them showing up extremely late so that we could not change our seats. We got bo- The movie had basically started, and then we got boxed in. I was like, oh, great. The people in front of us were fine. They were quiet the whole time. Other than they did the couple-up thing where they cuddled in one chair, which happened to be right in front of me. So I had literally no – my knees were up against his chair. Um, but other than that, they were quiet. I thought that she was about to start giving him a blowjob. But then we had Beavis and Butthead on the left of us that either laughed at things that were very mildly funny or not funny at all, but they thought they were the greatest. His laugh was just horrible. There was like a general, uh, it wasn't even supposed to be a real joke. It was like a in the movie joke where people tell a joke that no one in the audience laughs at. He says, well, all of us have worked hard for our position, uh, except for maybe Henry. Because he's a little... <laughs> okay, well, I didn't get I'm, to that I'm part. Sorry. Thanks, Heather. Mm-hmm. Um... And then the and then the people behind us, which uh, he then had to tell to to be quiet. Oh, and then the beavers and butthead. I think he brought a snack pack of Doritos that um, he wouldn't eat when the sound was up, and there was something to be involved in. You'd have to wait till the quieter moments and the atmospheric moments where you'd have to crumple, 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 and it wasn't a very big bag of chips. I just kept looking over as when is that? But there's only got to be have to have to have 15 chips in there. When is that going to be done? It was horrible. All right. Thanks for ruining my joke, by the way. Ethan. Go ahead and say it. No, it doesn't matter. Um, 
I think we talked about ghosts on the podcast before, right? I can't remember. You have any experience with ghosts? You have any feelings about ghosts? Any philosophies? Are ghosts in retrograde right now? No. Um, I believe in them. You do believe in them? Yes. It's physical manifestations like we saw in this film or more like balls of angry energy? I think they could be both. I think they could be anything. I Do you don't... think they could be president? Mm, I guess if they wanted to be. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, I don't think that I have seen a ghost because I think that they know that it would probably literally scare me to death. <laughs> um, but my friends have seen ghosts. Yeah, tell us a ghost story via one of your friends. One, one of the most more interesting ones. Hopefully uh, succinct and to the point and not too long. Uh, there's just a, a lady that several people from Inclined have seen. I mean, several meaning like a couple hundred. So oh, it's not yeah. something okay. that just a couple crazy people have mm-hmm. seen. A lady with long black hair that kind of just strolls or shows up. Just anywhere in Incline. Oh, really? Anywhere? And it, yeah. Well, it can be at a bar. It can be at the high school. It could be at the movie theater, at the gas station. And it's all walks of life that see her. Um, teenagers, 30-year-olds, so 60-year-olds. It's anybody. Is there a consensus, consensus on who she's supposed to be? I don't really know that part of it. I'm not from Incline. I can't still usually remember the whole story. I just remember that everybody's like, oh, I remember seeing that lady or, you know, it's just a, a, a tall, slender lady with long black hair that walks through See, Incline. I don't, myself, don't necessarily or really believe in ghosts. Um... And I've been a lot of places like where Heathen's talking about where they say, oh, a lot of ghosts are here. Have you seen a ghost? Or, uh, and, and then there's a, you know, uh, the school I went to, there's supposedly a ghost in the theater. And, and there was someone that had killed themselves there. Um, another, another place I had been, kind of similar story. Usually women ghosts. Seems like there's more women ghosts than men ghosts. And um, Heathen and I went ghost hunting in, in uh, Virginia City. Also, we stayed, Heathen and I stayed in a haunted hotel in Portland. And the guy asked me the next day when I went to go look for something, oh, did you see the ghost last night? And I said, no. Um, I think I don't outrule ghosts. I really don't believe in them logically, but I do believe, you know, that whole thing about energy can't be uh, destroyed. It can just be transferred and I can see that possibly being a um explanation for ghosts but i did and i and i feel like i talked about this on the podcast before when i was young so no one would ever believe me and i wouldn't probably believe myself because i was so young i was probably six or seven so young enough that you know no adult would ever believe me i went to visit my grandparents in um, southern california and they set up a cot for me in their room and my cot was up against a um, their closet, their sliding closet. Their sliding closet had mirrors on it, and I was laying there in my cot as a kid. And I don't, I've had this most of my life. It's always been a problem for me to fall asleep at night. 
I can lay there. I've gotten better at it, but when I was younger, I could lay there for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and just keep looking at the clock, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't ever be able to fall asleep for whatever reason. So I went to visit them. I was laying in the cot, tossing and turning 30, 40 minutes. They, they'd been asleep. Like most people, they'd been asleep, like right out. And um, I, I turned over on my side to face the mirror, and I saw a person right next to the cot looking at me. You know, I saw the reflection in the mirror, and it freaked the hell out of me because I hadn't been asleep or anything. And I, um, I didn't even look over. I just all I did was pull the blankets over my head, and and that's my ghost story. Interesting. Yeah, not much to it. I, I mean, the, the 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 logical explanation is somewhere in that tossing and turning. You know how there's a lot of people that say, like, I haven't slept all night, but that you've been there next to them, and you found that they've been asleep an hour or half hour or 15 minutes. Like, you've heard them snoring, and they're like, I didn't sleep all night. And I was like, you were, because I've been awake, and you were <laughs> sitting there snoring. Um, so I think that's probably what happened to me as I was tossing and turning and tossing and turning, and I probably did fall asleep for a little bit, and then I had some sort of dream or half dream. And it wasn't it wasn't one of those things like when you're a kid and you're... What are you shaking your head at? Nothing. It's not like one of those things when you're a kid and that you see like your jacket over a chair on the other side of the room and it's like taking on a different shape because you can't see it. This was something where it was right next to me in the mirror. I could see that it was a person... Um, there was nothing else around me. It was a wide open space around me. There was nothing else I could have imagined that it was there other than I was dreaming or something really was there. What else do you want to shake your head at, Heathen? Uh, the only thing that could have come close to maybe being something weird. <laughs> shake your head. That uh, freaked me out is... Um, we were at a family reunion in Vegas, and uh, we would oftentimes share rooms because in Vegas, nobody ever actually sleeps, you know, even at a family reunion. This is the uncle or grandpa one? Yeah, uncles, grandparents. So did, go ahead and talk about this. So it does remind, I think we both told these stories on the podcast before, but go ahead and tell um, this one again. My, we were all sleep. I've told several stories in Vegas about my uncle, so it could be no. And I think I any, told that story that I just told on the podcast any, before too. Any of them? There was one about my uncle going outside to pee, and he actually peed on the neighbors. You never told yeah. that story okay. before, but you've told the ghost one. But go ahead and okay. tell it again. Um, I thought we were all asleep, so it again, it could be one of my drunk uncles getting up to go to the bathroom. Um, but I'm pretty sure we were all asleep. But somebody grabbed my foot. And again, I'm pretty sure everybody was asleep, but somebody did grab my foot when we were in Vegas. Yeah, but probably someone walking by. But even to this could have been day, somebody walking by, but I was a teenager at the time and I wasn't drinking. So even to this day, I'm still afraid of someone grabbing my foot or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's why you can see me in photos up to this day. Uh, people call it like the mummy sleep where I put like a sheet over my head and I try to make sure my feet are covered up and try to make sure all my hands are inside. I don't want, when I was really small, like four or five, I was afraid of having my hands outside of the blanket because I thought vampires would bite me on the finger because of a board game that I would play. I don't know why a vampire would bite me on the finger. You'd think he would just pull the blanket off of me and bite me on the neck or whatever. Well, I but. used to sleep, like, really flat, like flat as a board, just in case 
a killer would come in or somebody like the Night Stalker would come in and try to kill me. And I was also afraid of earthquakes. So what was the flat um, part, though? What, what well, does that mean? I was trying to sleep as flat as I could. So if somebody came into the bedroom, they wouldn't know that there was somebody there. That, so I was completely covered. That was my idea of putting a blanket over my head. Mm-hmm. Was that, well, they won't know I'm here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I was also uh, really afraid of um, earthquakes. So I would have to sleep with all of the lights on, the hall light and everything. Mm, I put so that I would have ranks. clear access to my mom's room if an earthquake came i would beeline it to my mom's because it was really bad in southern california at the time so what what what's the scariest i mean what 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 was the actual part that scared you about an earthquake like which part like being trapped being crumpled the earthquake (laughs) so just shaking um i don't know i think it was like 1986 or something but it was in October. There were so many earthquakes that it was actually called Rocktober. Mm-hmm. And I think I was in fifth or sixth grade. And that really cemented it for me. I was afraid of... Um, that's when the Freddy Krueger thing, where I had to go to a um, sleepover and they made me watch those scary movies. So I was terrified of that. And then the earthquakes started happening. And then I was also afraid of, um, the, like, I think that was when the, no, the Night Stalker didn't happen until, like, high school. No, my but, question was, what about an earthquake scared you? Not, no, I'm just telling you, like, all of these things build up to the earthquake. I had always been used to the earthquakes, but it was all during that October. So you got the Lisa Sim- uh, Simpson thing that she yeah. got recently. She just broke down and was like, I can't mm-hmm. do anything anymore. I couldn't do anything. I slept with my mom for six months. With the lights on. Um, so in this film, I already talked about the... Uh, it was horrible. The initial foreshadowing and setup of the rivalry between Edith and Lucille. Basically, two women fighting over a guy. One a sister and one a love interest. Um, but it is a rivalry, and I kind of liked that part of the movie because I like dialogue, and I liked how... She the- didn't know that she was fighting for... Oh, you could tell there was there was some snipping back and forth, uh, several, and there was some cold shoulders, and there was it was very a subtle, bit, but and that's why I like I like I like dialogue, and I like when they they do things like that through dialogue instead of making it very obvious. Like I love him, and you're in my way, and you know, like when they come back, I mean, they they made it really that obvious was towards the end. They made it really obvious uh, towards the end when they slept in the. Um, in the the stables or whatever and they came back and the sister's like why why were you there you slept with him there the whole night um so it doesn't have to be a rivalry um about a guy but it was a rivalry nonetheless and you could tell the rivalry was set up in the beginning again when when she's talking about the butterflies and the moss you could tell that that was some sort of foreshadowing and i also believe that that was lucille doing a little bit of verbal bullying early on so do you have any experience with a female rivalry or any rivalry at all, especially one that is mostly about talk and not about action? Just like those little those little barbs that like, oh, you said that, huh? Well, okay, I got you. I'll remember you said that. And that like everyone else might not even catch. Mm, like talking about butterflies and moths. That happens a lot with girls. Mm-hmm. So I kind of try to take it with a grain of salt. Do you have an example? Um, 
not like right off the top of my head, but I would have to think about it. Are, I you, didn't. are you usually the bully in that? Are you usually the Edith or are you usually the Lucille? I'm usually the Lucille. Oh, so you're the mean one. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> you started off so by saying they're are, both Lucille. Are you, the, are you the moth the, or the butterfly? I'm usually the butterfly, but I can be the moth if I need to be. Um, so my thing is first you give them the sugar, then you give them the salt because... With women, you kind of have to be that way. It's like you have to be nice to people first. and I like to give them the roofie, then I like to give them the dick. Well, that might be if for you do men. It, if you do it the other way around. Uh, I don't know. It can work too, honestly. All right, go ahead, Ethan. I was sorry to interrupt you. Oh, yeah. In honor of Guillermo del Toro, our Spanish <laughs> director. <laughs> I like my cocktail. I wish you would not do that. Didn't we just talk about what it is to have like that uh, slurp thing this morning with um, Kelly? <laughs> it sounds uh, when you when you put it like that without context or detail, it just sounds like <laughs> that someone was giving me a blowjob and that we told her to be quiet. Okay, well. Which reminds me of a Facebook post I saw about our mutual friend who played the tree saying, uh, like, roommates, please have, please have sex quieter. Uh, it just reminds the, of those of us that are alone that we're just not. And plus, listening to people have sex is either uh, like 5% kind of hot, but 95% of the time super annoying. And oh, maybe not. Maybe there's like 25% in there, which is really funny. I remember there, uh, in Placerville, by by where I where I lived, there was these people that would have sex across the street really loud, and I thought it was so hilarious because I didn't think two people actually would sound like that. They sound like porn movies. Like you're so deep, fuck me harder. You're you're doing it. Keep doing it. It just sounded ridiculous to me. Yeah, that's how you can tell somebody's faking it if it's that obvious no so loud though yeah so uh no female rivalry not currently no all right uh the last thing i i had written for this is talking more about the metaphors and parallels and most of these are parallels and going along with the movie there was old versus modern there was a lot of that so there was the old old castle that was sinking into the ground and the brother and sister wanted to keep it alive as part of their namesake but meanwhile the brother was an inventor and he invented things like those creepy clowns plus he had like a clay digging machine um very modern man of the world uh wanting to go around also there was the modern versus um traditional in the fact that our protagonist uh edith she wanted to be an author, a writer, and like she turned in her manuscript and she was, um, what do you call it, like uh, discriminated against a little bit for being a woman. That maybe the kind of story she wrote, they wanted her to write more romances. And she said, Well, no, this isn't a romance. This is just, you know, a story with a ghost in it. And so there was that kind of dichotomy against traditional versus modern. Also, uh, going along with Edith to the parallel, and it, and it starts from the very beginning, is is she going to have a 
physical life, a life of love like she wants, or is she going to have a life of ghosts? And as she says in the beginning again, when she says she sees a ghost, as she says she believes ghosts are a metaphor of the past. So is she always going to be trapped in the past with her mother and be alone? Or is she, uh, or with the literal ghosts that we see in the film, that she's the only one that sees them almost until the end when, when one other person sees the ghost? Or is she going to have a, a physical life where she can interact with other people? Does she get together with that doctor played by Charlie Hunnam? What do you think? Did she think she got together with the doctor at the end? I hope so. If and, it's a love story. And there was some other foreshadowing. He rescued where, her. Where they say we have our very own Jane Austen. Oh, didn't she die a spinster? And Ida says, oh, I'd rather be Mary Shelley. She died a widow. And then that's, I mean, Edith does... That I don't made know if me she, laugh. I don't know if she dies a widow, but she does become a widow because her husband does die. Again, another spoiler. Yeah, but he was also married, so the marriage wasn't... Well, he was married to a bunch of people that were dead. He, yeah. So, I mean, he killed them. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, let's talk about the characters a little bit. I want it mostly, sorry, we have the three main characters, Edith, Lucille, and Thomas, and they're all interesting. What was your take on Thomas? Like, how much did you think that he absolved himself or redeemed himself at the end? Um, he was kind of a pussy who, when he was like an accomplice, a lot of bad things happened that he knew about and helped happen, but he hadn't really done any of them. So there's a lot of murders that he knew about, but he probably physically wasn't involved in any of them right uh so that's uh that you have to go by character um if you were actually in in that as a real-time thing like if you were in character you would have to think of him as his person he's done this his whole life it's not going to change yeah, but how did you feel though? Did you feel that he was redeemed? Do you would no. you would you have forgiven him? So that's what I was trying to say too is that at the end Thomas he was doing some redeeming actions. He was uh trying not to kill the doctor. He was trying he did he he tried to save Edith and it I think the movie was trying to make us believe he's good now. Him and Edith belong together she's found her love but i was like no he's still probably a bad person he's known about like four other deaths before this right i don't think that he um wanted to uh kill anybody um but i don't think that she would have stayed with him if he was alive i think she would have left and that's why i'm glad he died at the end because i was afraid they were going to have them together and then I wouldn't have bought it. Um, I'm glad he died. And he didn't really do anything to save her at the end. I mean, he did as a distraction. I, I wish that he would have done something. When Edith is saying, uh, help me. And she's like, no one's here to help you. She says, there is. Turn around. And she sees um, her dead brother. And then, uh, and then Edith uses the shovel or whatever she uses on her head. Lucille, I thought, was an interesting character, too. Um because if you try to look at it from her point of view, basically just another jealous woman, and really a lot of her motivation was just out of 
love, I think, for her brother and for her family. She's the one that didn't want to leave the past behind. She was kind of the anchor. Um, even Thomas at the end said, we can leave the castle behind. We can go have a new life. We can do all of this. You had to know eventually that as a brother and a sister, we were going to stop humping each other, that I've outgrown you. And she's like, no, no, we really were, we're family. We've, we've, we're the closest as we can be. And then Edith, as again, I think was an interesting character for this kind of period piece and that she was a fairly independent woman for that period. It seemed like that she was, I think, somewhat spoiled by her father, but also she ran the household. She said she didn't want to go to the party. Um, she was a writer, which couldn't have been that much uh, uh, popular. Um, and, and she was modern in her own way because the father gave her a pen as a gift. And she's like, no, I, need, I, want, to, I want to type this. And that hurt his feelings, you yeah. Know, again, going against. Anything else you want to add with this film? No. The Five. So here's five things for you to rank. These are the things uh, what you are most afraid of, heathen. And earthquakes is not on there. Neither are sharks. So we have clowns, <laughs> spiders, snakes, ghosts, and Bill Cosby. So rank those from, I guess, least scary, number five, to most scary, number one. For, so from the crust to the cream. Um, Bill Cosby. Is number five? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... <clears throat> Clowns. Clowns, number four. I would say... Hmm. Uh, spiders. Number three. Uh, ghosts. Number two. They're pretty high up there. Yeah, and snakes. Snakes, number one. I did not know that, but... Yeah, but I actually owned one, so that's funny. But earthquakes are still higher than that, and so are sharks, and so are some other things. So, oh, what's yeah. your, what would you say is your biggest fear? Mm. Generally, dying alone. No, I welcome that. Uh, giving a speech naked in front of strangers while on fire in a cave that's flooding. <laughs> All right, let's go to last call. Last call. Last call. What question was that, Heathen? Uh, what was scary to me, and then you answered it, but that's okay. What, what, what was it? I guess dying alone while I'm on fire or whatever. That's, the, that's your biggest fear? Sure. All right, so if you guys got any questions for us, or if you just want to call in and say that Star Wars is going to suck or whatever, we do have our 24-hour recorded VIP line, 775-996-3986. And next week for the podcast, we will be talking about the film Steve Jobs. And I don't think we have anything else to cover. You can see pictures from this episode and a recipe for a drink by going to PotablePictureShow.com. And don't forget, you can always follow us at Twitter, at Potable Pictures. Any last words, Heathen? Nope. Until next time, everybody, keep it wet.
cups must have got swept. You correcting yourself is yep. a distraction. <laughs> Stupid cubs.